Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, it's your sexy Cylon wizard, Holden McNeely. And it's me, your 1970s bold and competent <laughs> leader who definitely isn't a Canadian-Russian-Jewish man trying to just seem like he's not Russian-Jewish-and-Canadian. <laughs> Bruiser Jake Young. And today we are talking about, of course, Battlestar Galactica. It's been a long time coming. This is a Patreon-sponsored episode from Koji Krill. Thank you so much, Koji who wants to plug eavesdrop.com forward slash portfolio forward slash roasted dash games. Roasted games. It seems like a better connection to you guys. The Roasted Games podcast. Ah, I see. The Roasted Games podcast is an exploration of what does and does not make a good game and the brilliance and pitfalls of board game design. Very interesting. I, I want to check that out. Again, that's Roasted Games podcast. And, you know, thank you to all of our patrons. And it's it's people that are supporting us that helps us keep this going because um, we love you and we need you. Yes, absolutely. We greatly, greatly Greatly appreciate it. Uh, so here we go. Holden, when you think Battlestar Galactica, what are what are the flashes? What are the words? Free word association. Go, go, uh, go. Cylon, uh, big ship, <laughs> uh, seri- serious man, <laughs> serious woman. Um, yeah, I don't. What about you? What about you, Jake? We're, even though I loved the reboot series, even though nine eleven, weirdly, I, yeah, a lot of nine eleven. Um, <laughs> even though I was addicted to the sci fi series, all I can think about is how Battlestar Galactica was forever in the periphery of like nerd references. Like right. anything that had anything to do with nerd shit, there would always be like a little Cylon in the like old school Cylon Centurion in the background or someone would just make like a reference to it because it just had the ultimate like forgettable yet like ephemeral Battlestar. Literally, it's called Battlestar Galactica. Like it's, right. it sounds made up. It sounds like something in a TV show about nerds that right. like someone would make up. Specifically, this is how primal my brain is. I think about uh, the Simpsons episode, the Treehouse of Horror, where like the comic book guy was a supervillain called the Collector. Remember that one? Uh huh. With a stretch dude and Clobber Girl, and literally, uh, he's like, di- he's getting drowned in plastic, and comic book guy's just like, 
must make classic Lauren Green pose from Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> Best death ever. Like it's, it was just, it was just oh, because it was referenced on The Simpsons. It was like real to me, right? And I never visited it. I never understood any of it besides the reboot. Um, I got so desperate doing research this week that I actually found the Twitter of the original Simpsons writer who wrote that episode, Tim Long. And I was like, hey, um, I've been doing research about Battlestar Galactica all fucking week. Um, what the fuck is this Lauren Green post? Lauren Green is the actor who played uh, Admiral Adama in the original series. It's like, he doesn't die in the original series. He doesn't die in the uh, 1980 thing. There's no, like, comic. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what is this? And uh, he just finally wrote back to me today. Oh, hey, it's been a while since that Simpsons episode and even longer since Battlestar Galactica. But, uh, oh, I, we made that up. <laughs> we, literally, in the one reference to Battlestar Galactica that I carry with me since childhood... They just used it as a generic bullshit sci-fi reference. So for me, I have zero connection to this franchise in childhood and into adulthood. I will say, though, my first real connection to it was other than friends, you know, especially friends who love sci-fi like one Henry Zabrowski, folks like that definitely had recommended it to me in the past. But based on the idea that they're, the really good episodes are really, really good, but there are also a bunch of not-so-great episodes. This, of course, in the remake. So mm-hmm. I'd always... And that in and of itself makes me not want to watch a thing because I'm like, well, I don't want to slog through the sloggers just to get to the big, fun loggers. You know what I mean? But I, uh, my first connection to it was actually a board game night. I went ah. over to my friend Skulk Steve's apartment, him and his wife, Nikki, my wife Lexi accompanied me, and we had the funnest night playing the Battlestar Galactica board game, which is fantastic. It's essentially like Werewolf. It is a co-op game at first. You're all trying to help man the ship and get it to Earth, right? You're trying to get it to its destination or whatever. Uh, and then about halfway through the game, everyone draws cards, and you find out who is the secret Cylon, and then you draw cards again, and all of a sudden you could be a Cylon mm-hmm. late game. Which is a brilliant... This yeah, was before uh, Mafia and Werewolf kind of became this, like... This was before... I feel like it was, like, at the cusp of the board game revival. Uh-huh. And tying the themes of the show to a Werewolf Mafia-style game was a brilliant Perfect. move. Nikki was the Cylon. She fooled all of us. <laughs> I thought for sure Lexi was the Cylon. Everyone was screaming at each other. It was so much fun. And we were so blown away by Nikki's uh, stealth Cylon work. It was incredible. Uh, had a great time. And really, it did teach me what uh, basically what the show is all about, which is really funny. If we ever play this game, Holden, know for a fact that I will spend the entire time, whether I'm a Cylon or not, just doing a bad Michael Hogan uh, <laughs> Saul Tai impression. I'll just be like, here's your fracking dice. Oh, God, the frackens. Walter, you son of a bitch. The frackens. I need a drink. So funny. But yeah, uh, it was so, so much fun. And uh, yeah, that that's about it until we get to us needing to actually sit down and watch the show for this episode. And that has been really fascinating. I've watched some of the more prominent episodes. Obviously, I didn't get to watch all 70-whatever episodes. I definitely watched the miniseries and was really blown away by the quality of it, especially because, like, I've always turned my nose up, I feel like, at the sci-fi channel in a lot of ways. Like, there's a lot of schlock there. There's a lot of badly made TV. This is just, like, an unbelievable... I mean, it's, like, HBO-quality 
mm. television making. And this was in a period before HBO quality, like when they were producing this show. Yeah. This was like, uh, you know, o- writers. Oh, three. Yeah. Yeah. This was people just got a whiff of the Sopranos and were like, oh, we can do this? Right. And so you have really strong character development, really intense stakes, really solid stakes, running away from. I mean, that episode, the first episode of the whole thing, 33, is phenomenal television making. It is it is uh, it is a stressful nightmare of a situation where they have to they have to jump every 33 minutes and they've been doing it for days and days and days. Everyone's no one's getting sleep. Everyone's losing their minds. It's just fantastic. It's actually amazing to watch the miniseries followed by uh, 33 because the changes and decisions that they made between the miniseries stage uh-huh. and the TV show stage are immediately apparent. Even like the set is grimier. The cameras are fuzzier. Like you like the ending kind of of the series it, it's kind of hopeful, you know, they kind of are, you know, they're doing the Battlestar Galactica thing, which is like, these brave explorers are, you know, running and they're gonna, like, find Earth. And then just from second one, like, the implication is, oh, while you were waiting for the TV show after that hopeful ending, uh, our heroes have been getting rocked. Right, right. Like, the helplessness is so much more apparent. It's, it feels so real. And especially being in a situation right now where... The the greater part of the world is very helpless due to this unseen force that seems to be attacking us, that that is coming after us every single day, and we have to completely change the way we live our lives to adapt to that. It is very prescient. It is very, very... uh, uh, It's a good time to watch it in a way. I've enjoyed confronting some of the emotions I'm feeling in the real world. Of course, this if you're listening to this far in the future, uh, this we are recording this at the time of the COVID pandemic, and that's what I'm referencing right now. But it really actually does help me process what's happening in my own life by watching a show like this. Just fantastic stuff. And I'm so glad we're finally doing an episode on it. So uh, shall we get into it? And and then, of course, we're going to start with the original Battlestar Galactica. I know we've been harping mostly on the remake, uh, but we will be also talking about the uh, where it all came from. It was very interesting watching the original because watch it, rewatching the reboot made me feel like nostalgic for the well, not in a way nostalgic and like glad that we're not in the Bush era anymore. Uh huh. But like. Rewatching the 78 show or, you know, watching two episodes of it that I got on Amazon, not to <laughs> my horn, uh, was definitely like a weird culture shock because that's a world I did not experience. And it's a very odd window. Right. Right. Into that, like, late 70s groovy, like, experience. Right. Right. Totally. It, it, that That is the weird. And, and the remake, in a way, it approaches the show based on. The fact there was this great quote I have that I will get to where the uh, what's his name? Moore, right? Um, Ronald D. Moore. Ronald D. Moore talks about how, you know, that how crazy the stakes are for this fleet of, of starships and how intense the beginning of the show is. And then he's like, and then the very next episode, they go to the casino planet. That's the weird disconnect when it comes to the, ver- the first one. The first one very much feels like a 70s. It, it it is both very good writing and very good stuff that we see in the remake. 
mixed with hokey. I have thoughts. Yeah. I mean, in the transition, the 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 war over Battlestar Galactica that took place before the miniseries and the TV show uh, coalesced is fascinating, and I want to get into that. So yes. yeah, let's start this story. Let's do it. The very first Battlestar Galactica. Uh, this is an American sci-fi media franchise created by Glenn A. Larson. So we're going to be talking about him for the at the very beginning here. It, it originally ran in 1978 for 24 episodes. Larson started out in a vocal group, The Four Preps. The Four Preps! I mean, literally, that was, yeah, they were parody <laughs> folk uh, barbershop shit. And uh, he produced three gold records for Capitol, all of which were written and composed by Larson, which led him and another session singer to write and compose the theme for a show called The Fall Guy, starring Lee Majors. This is where he gets into TV. He got his first writing credit on the TV show The Fugitive, and that production, among others, he worked on with successful producer Quinn Martin, uh, which led to Larson signing his own production deal with Universal Studios. His first hit series was Alias Smith and Jones. Okay, so this is the deal with Glenn A. Larson. This is what you have to know <laughs> is, oddly enough, in our Hulk episode, we got into the weird politics of 70s adventure TV. Yes, we did. Larson, uh, his son, talks about how he's a very driven guy. Uh, commercial success was important to him. He genuinely was, he understood the business part of show business. And uh -huh. all of his major uh, TV accomplishments, the kind of uh, notches on his belt, that gave him the opportunity to make Battlestar Galactica are all just derivations of popular 70s movies. So, for example, Alias Smith and Jones was blatantly inspired by Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's these two knockabout cowboy friends and they're up to no good and they're underdogs. Um, another one that he had success with was BJ and the Bear, which is I'm going to throw that in with other things that get randomly referenced on The Simpsons for no reason. But that was about like a, a guy and a monkey. And that was clearly a knockoff of Clint Eastwood's Every Which Way But Loose, which was also, you know, a guy and a monkey show. Uh-huh. And then he gets the opportunity to make Battlestar Galactica, which was greenlit only because Star Wars was big. And yes. he was the guy who makes the derivative T-shows to popular movies. This is an actual quote from sci-fi legendary author Harlan uh, Ellison, who gave him the nickname... Uh, Glenn Larceny. <laughs> you know, this was a guy who he grew up uh, in within the LDS church. He was very intense. Yes, very important to say. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and incorporated a ton of the concepts from the church into the show, such as there being 12 colonies of man, which mirrors the Mormonism's lost tribes of Israel. And those mm. colonies were led by a, quote, quorum of 12, which is like the Council of the Twelve Apostles, that the Church of LDS is run by even today. It also uh, has the element of marriages being referred to as ceilings, and they're more than just death to us part. Instead, they last, quote, through all eternities, which is another big thing in the show. Also, the one of the most blatant things out there is uh, the fact that the planet Cobol in, in both the old series and the new series yes. has this, like, very important uh, connotation, and the planet Kolob in LDS mythology yes. is the is one of the grand planets where like God lives. I butchered that, please, but it's it's important. Uh, but watching the show, it really isn't Mormon propaganda. It really okay. is just using the uh, tap the 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 trappings of kind of Mormon religious importance to kind of give the world a gravity and kind of special tribal traditionalism. 
and this happens all the time in sci-fi, uh, especially, you know, if we're going to call uh, Battlestar Galactica Mormon propaganda, then we'd have to call Star Trek Jewish propaganda because uh-huh. Spock makes the uh, Jewish hand sign for right. live long and prosper. It's just right, right. you're drawing on all these childhood references for what feels big and important and 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 sacred. Also, apparently the idea for the Cylons is said to be greatly inspired by Fred Saberhagen's series of books called the Berserker series. Okay, listen, just because they're a self-aware machine race, hell-bent on exterminating the human race, and their sole-defining characteristic is a (laughs) red eye that oscillates left and right, (laughs) doesn't mean they're a (laughs) ripoff. So, yeah, unheard of at the time, Larson is actually able to get a budget of $1 million dollars per episode to make Battlestar Galactica, which was initially titled Adam's Ark. So again, another religious reference. It was initially supposed to be a series of made-for-TV movies, a three-hour pilot and two two two-hour episodes released on ABC. But after the pilot, ABC decides to commission a weekly TV series instead, which took Larson's writing team by surprise, leading to pretty weak Crash of the Week episodes for a while before they could get the episodes back up to snuff in the new format, which is why, again, we go back to this concept of very good ideas happening in the in the 70s show, very strong episodes mixed together with schlock, for lack of a better word. This is, okay, so the, the similarities to Star Wars, they are definitely, like, st- this is 1978, Star Wars is huge at the moment, and, you know, they're selling tons of toys, and the idea is, yeah, you waste a lot of money on the show, but you'll make a ton of to- monies with merchandising. Uh-huh. And so... There's too many similarities to, like, to re- uh, first of all, the original title that was actually released in theaters for that initial pilot movie was Saga of a Star World. <laughs> yes, yes, it Star was. Star World. <laughs> the main theme, Mary, it's early in the episode, I'm going to be doing this a lot. Um, the main theme for Battlestar Galactica was written by Stu Phillips, and it is... Just a blatant knockoff of John Williams' Star Wars theme. Uh, Mary, just play a couple of bars of that 78 Battlestar theme. Like you, like you can see the text crawl as it's playing. Yes, yeah. They also, they also literally use John Dykstra mm-hmm. and other former artists from George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic Special Effects House, who formed their own company, Apogee Inc., which I believe we've talked about before. I, I'm not sure of the timing, but I think it breaks down that like this was the Star Wars uh, team before Lucas had the wherewithal to actually coalesce and create ILM for his later Star Wars movies. Dykstra was known for creating the Dykstraflex motion-controlled camera that was responsible for getting many of the groundbreaking shots in the, uh, the very first Star Wars film. However, he and Lucas butted heads, and eventually Dykstra left ILM. Apparently, it took him so long to create this camera, and he wasn't getting the shots as um, uh, on time the way George Lucas wanted it. They got into these big fights because of that. Dykstra then went over to Battlestar Galactica to supervise the special effects for the pilot and onward. And Lucas and 20th Century Fox later began legal proceedings against Universal for, quote, plagiarizing Star Wars, claiming it had stolen 34 distinct ideas, which led to a countersuit, but it was all eventually thrown out. The It was Larson's notes from his Adam's Ark uh, pitch that I think saved their asses at the end. To add to the Star Wars similarity, uh, famous uh, artist Ralph McQuarrie 
actually also contributed designs to Galactica. Mm. And watching the pilot, it's fucking rad. Like, the That's special cool. effects are so good, and the aerial dogfights, like, the the level of just cool ship designs, the level of sweeping camera, laser, pew-pew kind of space dogfighting is basically on the same level of that original Star Wars, you know, barring wow. all the uh, remasters and special, you know, edits that they've done to kind of clean it up in, in the past couple of decades. I was genuinely blown away by the level of effects on the ships, on the Vipers, on the on the battle scenes in the first pilot episode. And if I was a kid, if I was 12 years old, this would have been my, this would have been mind blowing on television, mm. having like basically new Star Wars footage, right? right. Uh, it's, you know, because this Star Wars wasn't uh, you know this generational franchise yet. It was just the cool spaceship movie, and here was all, all these functionally identical cool spaceships on my TV screen. Yeah, literally made by the same people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That 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 would definitely have been an exciting endeavor for for sure. What was the other did you watch any hokey stuff as well or what was so the other one you there's watched? There's some there's some definite uh hokey stuff even in the pilot. They introduced this little kid sidekick named Boxy that they like reference in the mini in the reboot miniseries, but then they kind of shove him under the table and he's the kind of like precocious kid character. The 70s hair everywhere, just the 70s swagger. But there's an opening scene where it's uh, the, it's Richard Hatch as Apollo, Dirk Benedict as dude Starbuck and uh, some guy I forgot who plays uh, Zach Adama, the tragically killed brother. And they're just like hanging out shirtless in the locker room with all their 70s hair. And I'm just like, this is from a different time. This is <laughs> just I kind of jumped around. I ended up watching what many people called one of the better shows which was, um, uh, what was it? It was the episode where they introduced the Pegasus and, and Admiral Kane, which in the, instead of um, a kick-ass PTSD lady is just this like older movie star guy that like carries around one of those little like military like bopping canes. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? How old-timey generals had like the little canes? <laughs> he had like a cravat and 70s hair. And the whole time they're talking about it, it's like, there's Admiral Kane. He's the toughest, coolest, strategic guy in the world. Powerful warrior. Even more powerful as a lover. And like everyone's fawning over this guy. And the whole time I'm waiting for like, okay, but what's the twist? Where's the war crime? Like, what fucked up thing did he have to do to like survive this long? Because, you know, I'm trained by modern television. And by the end of the, the series, by the end of the story, there is no twist. It's just, he just is cool. And everyone just agrees he fucking rules. And that's the <laughs> end of the It's just, that's right. I'm a 50-year-old white guy and I rule. There's no reason to subvert this. <laughs> it is fine. I'm awesome. And I fuck. <laughs> So the show runs for 24 oh, episodes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I am sorry. Holden, Holden, before we get to the reboot, there is something we need to acknowledge. And that is Boxy, the adorable kid, had a pet. In the world of Battlestar Galactica, there is magical, like, alien dogs that pretty much look like uh, Ewoks. They pretty much are just Ewoks. And uh, Boxy's favorite dugget, doggett, Dies. Jesus. Uh, to replace him, they introduce a robot Duggett named Duggett Two, <laughs> and this was played. Holden, we've talked about this so many times. This is we've talked about it in the Predator episode. We talked about this in other creature feature movies. 
they did it. The bastards in 1978 Battlestar Galactic actually did it. The character was played by a chimp in a full body costume. Oh my God, I forgot. Yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. They so did it. They did what Star Wars was unable to do with Yoda, which is put a monkey in a costume and let that monkey perform. A three-year-old chimp named Evie. It looks so tortured in any scene where you can find it. Okay, Muffet. I'm sorry. I kept, it was a, the the species is called Daggett and the character was called Muffet 2 and it was played by a chimp. It's clearly a chimp. Like its front legs are way too long. It doesn't move like a dog. It doesn't move <laughs> like a robot. It has these dealy, like uh, mechanized dealy boppers all over its face covering, but it's just, it's just looks wrong because spoiler alert, there's a fucking chimp trapped inside of this sweltering oh costume. Oh my God. And in behind, the, I found a DVD extra clip, and every scene with Muffet Two had to be ADR'd in post because in the uncut footage, while people are trying to do their lines, you can hear a screaming chimpanzee in every scene it's in. <laughs> so they'll be like Admiral Adama tucking Boxy into bed and be like, "Now oh, I know things look grim, but." Fortunately, humanity will rise to another day. And in the whole time, you just hear like, ah, 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 ah. Oh my it's fucking God. horrifying. Uh, that is that is awful. So if you're going to revisit Battlestar Galactica 1978, you must acknowledge the sacrifice of Evie, Ugh. the chimp in a full body robot costume. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag and Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So the show runs for 24 episodes before it is canceled due to low ratings. The final episode of the first series was telecast on April 29th, 1979. This leads, though, to one of the very early versions of this, a massive write-in campaign. And this was not not normal for TV shows back at this time. Many, many people wrote in to get the series back on air. And it was so unheard of at the time that ABC actually contacts Glenn A. Larson to see about reviving the series. However, they want a cheaper format going forward. They want changes to be made. The network wants a cheaper format. The fans want even more expensive spaceships. Larson and ABC decide to relaunch it as a spinoff set five years after the final episode of the original series. Now, this is just a clear case of uh, corporate fuckery just destroying a franchise. In this version, we have the president of the Council of Twelve going rogue and back in time to alter Earth's history in order to get it to develop more rapidly up to a colonial level in order to properly combat the Cylons, which is already a pretty crazy convoluted plot involving a lot of 
time travel. Now, originally, it was supposed to be Apollo and Starbuck who give chase to stop him, but these characters and parts were changed, mainly due to the fact that the actors had moved on to other projects, and there were casting issues and things like that. Uh, Lauren Green returned as Adama, and he Mm. famously worked for no money. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the network, of course, comes back to them and says, hey, you know all that time travel stuff that is really the basis of the entire series reboot? Yeah, we, we don't like that, actually. And this was after the pilot had already been completed and they had agreed to pick up the series, but only if they got rid of the time travel. To be fair, one of the time travel plots literally involved one of the main characters going back to Nazi Germany to recruit, like, the mm-hmm. rocket scientists. Yes. So, like... It's very, it was not family friendly. It was, it yeah. was, oh, it was a, also, yeah, they were, they went back to, it was quote unquote modern day earth so that they didn't have to make expensive sets. They could just like, um, walk around Los Angeles and instead of like expensive spaceship fights or, you know, they would reuse old footage from the original show if they had to show a spaceship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just these two characters. One was supposed to be an adult boxy. The other one who's supposed to play kind of the Starbuck foil was just some random guy. Mm-hmm. And they just had like a space shootout with like shitty bad guys in Cylon Centurion costumes. It just no even the long term fans like had nothing good to say about Galactica 80. So Larson and co-producer Don Belisario reluctantly agreed to remove the time travel aspects. However, Belisario would later bring back the time travel concept for the more successful Quantum Leap TV series, which I'm sure we'll end up doing a Quantum Leap episode at some point. So that uh, is an interesting history bit for me when I when I read that. I mean, it's um, it's 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 a weird piece of like uh, Dean Stockwell ended up becoming this evil Cylon number one in the reboot, and he ended up, and he was like the I forgot the character's name, but you know the uh, the hologram guy, the the fun helper guy from Quantum Leap, Grammy. It was Grammy. <laughs> no. <laughs> also, one thing. This is this is one dumb fact. Before we uh, get off the uh, old series, I just want to acknowledge that the guy who played Baltar, who was a completely different character in the old series, uh, he's he's basically he doesn't have a mustache, but he is a mustache twirling villain in 1978. Uh-huh. John Colicos is a Canadian actor, and the only other noteworthy thing that I think is worth uh, mentioning is that he was the voice of Apocalypse in the 1990s X-Men series. Oh, uh, right, right. I actually remember reading about that. You are, I am the rocks of the shore. Crash against me and be broken. Also, weirdly enough, the show becomes more about these kids with superpowers. Uh, Yeah, either way, the show is very poorly received and is canceled after just 10 episodes. Now we have this weird in-betweener phase where a bunch of different people keep trying to bring the show back. Richard Hatch, who played Captain Apollo in the original series, produced a demonstration video in the late 90s featuring several actors from the original series with updated special effects called Battlestar Galactica The Second Coming. It did get shown at some conventions and things like that. People really liked it, but it did not lead to a new series. Then the producer of the sci-fi video uh, film based on a video game, Wing Commander, Todd Moyer, along with Glenn Larson, announced plans to produce a film based on the original series. 
that doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it was going somewhere, and then the movie Wing Commander actually came out, uh-huh. and it turns out it sucked all the donkey nuts, uh-huh. and nobody wanted to work with him again. Lastly, X-Men director Brian Singer and producer Tom DeSanto started working on a miniseries for the franchise in 2000, set 25 years after the OG series, with plans to bring a lot of the original cast back, but setbacks actually caused by what probably the biggest influence on the reboot setbacks caused by 9-11 caused the whole thing to be scrapped which is very interesting and now that brings us up to the miniseries so i'm working uh, off of a, a really almost too comprehensive uh, oral history book i got off kindle called so say we all the complete uncensored unauthorized oral history of Bowser galactica and they claimed that like after uh brian singer got taken off Bowser galactica because in the interim period his X-Men movie had come out and made a bunch of money and Fox was like, oh no, you're not wasting your time on this dumb thing from the 70s. You are making X-Men too." Ha, yeah, totally. Um, so you can't talk about the remake without Ronald D. Moore. Yes. And um, one of the most fascinating things I found about this guy was that basically everything we love about Battlestar Galactica was beaten out of him when he got his dream job of writing for Star Trek. And I'm so happy you sent me that show Bible. That was one of the most impressive things I've read about television making. I loved the balls of the sheer balls of that document. It made me it inspired me greatly. Like if Wait, I, we'll, if get I, it, we'll get into the document. The document is yeah, actually a weirdly fascinating thing. It is very fascinating. But but this is I bring this up now specifically because it and a large uh, it it largely is based on them wanting to make something that a sci-fi show that has never been made before largely based on Robert Ronald D Moore Rather's experience working on Star Trek. So, Universal sets their sights on a remake rather than a sequel, and David Icke at Universal approaches Ronald D. Moore about a four-hour miniseries. Moore studied political science, which I think is really important, at Cornell University, but left school early to work odd jobs while trying to become a professional writer. He toured the set one day of Star Trek The Next Generation and managed to pass off a script he wrote to one of Gene Roddenberry's assistants, uh, who, of course, the creator of Star Trek, which led to Moore snagging an agent. And through the agent, uh, Moore gets that same script into the hands of Star Trek producer Michael Pillar's hands, who actually got the thing made as an episode in the third season, while also landing Moore a staff job, which eventually led to a producer job on the show's final season. So Moore's strength seemed to lie in his development of the Klingon race and culture, and he would go on to write or co-write 27 Next Generation episodes, which makes, again, a lot of sense when you look at the strength of the Cylons and how fascinating they are as a as as characters in Battlestar Galactica that he would you know he's bringing this experience from working with the Klingons Moore would go on to work on Deep Space Nine and he had a very short stint on Voyager as well but he ended up leaving on bad terms so Deep Space Nine was this huge swerve for the Star Trek mythos because There was longer story arcs. There was genuine character change. There was kind of things from one episode would affect later episodes, especially towards the end of the series, where they kind of got into these really deep and kind of fascinating arcs with the different characters. And these were things that were explicitly forbidden in Star Trek, especially in The Next Generation. And so when he got onto Voyager, if you remember the premise of Voyager, uh, you know, it's Captain Janeway and they're off in the Delta Quadrant and they're just 
you know, billions of miles away from home and they're trying to get their way back. And, you know, they're kind of stranded. And so this whole time, Moore is asking stuff like, well, wait a minute, in previous week's episode, they like blew a hole through the, you know, through the hull of the Voyager. Like, wouldn't they still be like on like weakened from that? Or like, aren't they trying to fix that? Or stuff like, um, hey, why is everyone still listening to Janeway if they've been <laughs> stranded completely free from the chain of command for like years now? Like, why, why, you know, aren't they, shouldn't they have an election or something? Or, you know, even basic stuff like, hey, these characters have been traumatized repeatedly. Wouldn't right, that affect right. their decision making at all? All these things that you see in Battlestar, by the way, yeah. And the whole time, uh, his... The showrunner, a guy named Brandon Braga, who used to technically work under Ronald Moore on Next Generation, was just shooting him down. And the uh, kind of head honcho of the Star Trek franchise, a guy named Rick Berman, who's like this weird, almost like George Lucas level eccentric villain to a lot of fans, was literally playing more off of people and trying to like sow discontent and make people feel kind of on edge as if, you know, he could like switch people's jobs at any second. And so it was specifically having to bash his head against that fucking status quo. The idea that the iron law of Star Trek is nothing really changes that much. And the real big questions aren't told really through the characters. You go and you land on a planet where something goofy is happening. And you th- I'm just going to throw this out of nothing. Just be like, uh, you land on a planet and it turns out uh, the babies have sex and the adults <laughs> are the babies. <laughs> Makes you think, right? Right. Like, you know, just dumb shit like that. <laughs> I think they did. Wait, wasn't there a character who was like this, like sexy lady who was technically like five, five years old? Something. There like, was a Neelix monkey girl. in that woman's costume wearing her skin. There was a monkey. There was a fucking monkey in the costume. The monkeys rule the earth now. It's a planet of the monkeys. This week's episode of Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> so, like you said, uh, the co-producer, co-creator is a guy named David Icke. And uh, he was more of a kind of go-getting uh, showbiz, like, studio exec. He was kind of more of a suit with creative aspirations. Yeah, yeah. More, more ends up working with him on a supernatural comedy drama TV series called Good vs. Evil, which aired on the USA Network and then switched to the Sci-Fi Channel in early 2000. And this is where he first meets David Icke, who they worked together on this miniseries while also creating a backstory that could work as a weekly series if the miniseries was successful enough. Moore said, I was really in love with this idea of doing a sort of documentary style making it much more naturalistic than science fiction is usually presented. And I was looking for something that was neither Star Wars, Star Trek, which I categorized in my head as a sort of the romantic side or Blade Runner Matrix, the cyberpunk side. I wanted a third kind of category to put in, put the show in. I wanted something that would be different. I really wanted it to be grounded. I really wanted it to be political, to sort of comment on society in a much more aggressive way than the work I had been doing on Trek and the other pieces. I wanted this show to be more political in the sense that watching these characters grapple with these ideas and concepts would be controversial and difficult, and that it would spark debate, and that you should not always agree with what your heroes were doing. Sometimes you'd be unclear whose side you were really on in the debates, and I wanted it to be more complicated and complex, much like the world we really live in. So none of that mattered to the executive. <laughs> this is this, so. This is a weird kind of eccentricity of television production. 
But, you know, rights transfer between different people, different conglomerates, spin off different studios and different production wings and then reacquire them. And so at this exact point in history, uh, Universal owned both the Sci-Fi Channel and the studio that Universal Pictures made mm. TV with. And so uh, Barry Diller, oddly enough, the same guy who used to own uh, College Humor, among many other and Match.com, he's media. He's come up a lot. He's the crazy Ted Turner media mogul type. Literally said, I own Universal now. We have the rights to a bunch of shit. I just like reboots are big. Make battles. We we got get Battlestar Galactica out of mothballs. I don't care as long as it has the name Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> uh, David Icke has the in with Universal, and he has the in with Moore, and he's like Moore's the guy who can do real good shit with this. And there's all sorts of other uh, executives who are, you know, basically the head of sci-fi is kind of bouncing around a little. But because it's so cheap and such a obvious move to do something with Battlestar Galactica, it keeps getting moved forward. Now, Moore makes some big changes from the original series, including the Cylons being created by humans, not a reptilian race. The names Apollo, Boomer, and Starbuck are now call signs, not actual names. The Quorum of Twelve is not mentioned in the miniseries, and they have a government body similar to the U.S. executive branch, a president, a vice president, secretaries, etc. Apollo is the call sign of Lee Adama, who is estranged from his father, blaming his dad for the death of his own brother. So there's a lot more tension, a lot more uh, difficulty between the characters. Baltar is a scientific genius here, as well as a womanizer who unknowingly allows a woman who is actually a Cylon agent to gain access to the colonial defense mainframe, which allowed for the Cylon attack. Of course, that is Agent 6. And on that note, some models of Cylons appear human. That's probably one of the biggest, biggest changes. Also, unlike the original or the Enterprise, Moore didn't want the ship to be special. Huge important part. In fact, he wanted it to be the opposite. He wanted it to be a total underdog. Moore said by saying the ship was going into retirement, that they were all kind of cast-offs and knuckleheads and people that other ships didn't want, and that Adama's going into retirement too and didn't make Admiral and has a bad relationship with his son, and that he's divorced and has lost one son in an accident he still can't grapple with and tolerates an alcoholic uh, as his first officer, he's already a deeply flawed man. Now take the deeply flawed man and put him in the position where the fate of humanity rests on his shoulders. And to me, that's an interesting show. Suddenly I'm engaged with him as a patriarchal figure because fathers are just flawed beings. You know, they're all deeply flawed people like we all are and it resonates more for me. And honestly, it reminds me, that all reminds me of watching George W. Bush after the towers fell all of a sudden, this, this kind of person, the butt of a lot of jokes, uh, the you know, this kind of goofy presidential figure being thrust into this giant tragedy, this um, this unbelievable event. I mean, it all really resonates for sure with, uh, I think that the comparisons are very obvious between that happening and the approach to this show. Can I tell an anecdote about Please? Ron Moore? This is still at the stage where they're working on the miniseries. This is after he left Voyager. So Ronald D. Moore actually got a pilot produced for something called Dragon Riders of Pern, <laughs> which was basically his fantasy. And it was basically going to be fantasy Battlestar Galactica. A lot of things he was talking about character growth, documentary, naturalistic style footage, um, serialized storytelling. These were the kind of dreams that he had for this show about, you know, instead of fighter pilots, they were, quote unquote, Dragon Riders. And um, they were producing it with WB, and 
the night before they were going to start shooting, they got uh, notes from the network. And WB had just succeeded with Dawson's Creek and a bunch of other teen shows. And they had completely reworked the plot to be about like teen romance and young pubescent <laughs> feelings. And this was not what Ronald <laughs> D. Moore uh, had in mind. And so he was furious. He was like shaking. He didn't know what to do. And he had a panel appearance at the Beverly Hills Museum of Television and Radio that same uh, night with uh, sci-fi writers J. Michael Straczynski, who we'll probably get into at many points in the future, and Harlan Ellison. And while all this is racing through Ronald D. Moore's head, they give the mic to Harlan when someone asks, uh, what advice do you have for young writers starting out in the business? This is what Harlan said. Don't be a whore. These people will rape you and they will take all of your talent and use it for your for their own shit. You've got to stand up and have some principles. Don't whore out your talent to anybody. Show some balls in this business. Be about mm. something. What does it mean to be a writer if you can't protect your talent? And it was and Ronald just says, "Whoa. I was driving in the car home that night and all I could remember was, don't be a whore. Don't be a whore. Don't be a whore. Oh my god. I'm going to call them tomorrow." And he put his foot down and said, I'm not doing your changes. I'm, this isn't the show I agreed to make. This isn't the show I want to make. And they took him off the project and the whole thing was shuttered. Wow. And, and you get that attitude in the show Bible. You, it really shines through. David Icke said, the goals of the miniseries were nothing short of reinventing the science fiction genre. We wanted to present people in a catastrophic situation in the wake of a tragedy, responding as human beings actually would through the prism of the science fiction genre. And you get that with that miniseries. Honestly, you do. You you feel this, this deep, serious tension that, again, just is unlike any other sci-fi show, especially at the time. Special effects were done by Zoic Studios, an American visual effects house based out of Culver City, California. They had previously worked on Firefly, and you could actually see a Firefly-class ship flying above the city as Laura Roslin sits in her doctor's office early in the miniseries. And also, I will say, I, I must commend the special effects. I really enjoyed the special effects in Firefly. They're definitely similar here, I feel. And I think they did a fantastic job. You already kind of mentioned this, but more wanted the outer space battles to look like a Discovery Channel crew was actually shooting the footage, talking about like he wanted to know where the camera was. It would have to be positioned on one of the other ships or something like that. But they needed like the camera to actually feel like it existed on uh, attached to something and not just floating in space, that sort of thing. It's uh, when you think of that weird kind of shot in the Battlestar reboot where the camera is almost struggling to follow yes. the Viper yes. in flight. That's what yep. they're going for. And it's, again, a direct response to the kind of still sweeping grandiose shots of the Enterprise from, during, in, from the mm -hmm. Star Trek series. Two things about the development of the special effects on the ship that I want to just point out. One of the CGI modelers, a guy named Pierre Drolet, 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 was actually had already done work for a very little remembered Battlestar Galactica PS2 game. Huh. And so he had just, so he just had... 3D Viper models ready to go. That's so funny. he just sent those in and they approved them. Uh, another thing is that um, the crew, the effects crew and the art directors had kind of hit a wall with what to do with the Galactica itself because they wanted to update it. They wanted it to feel grittier. They didn't want to feel like, you know, just another uh, Star Wars derivative uh, design. And so the main designer actually got up from his chair, went to a local library and just looked out at a bunch of art books. Mm. And 
they ended up kind of falling on the uh, works of a Brazilian designer and architect named Andrea Branzi. They settled on these vase designs. And if you Google Andrea Branzi hmm. vases, they have these sharp metal ribs all along the sides. This kind of like very, basically they look like uh, heat sinks, if I had hmm. to explain it. And if you look at the design of the Galactica, that ribbed metal construction, that uh-huh. weird like harsh, sturdy construction, you can, it's inspired by these vases. Very cool. And it, it does have a unique and, and fantastic design, I would say. For sure. Plus the 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 thing where they have the uh, the launch bays kind of tuck in and tuck out. That's a nice thing. It's very toyetic. That's a fun. That was a fun thing to do. Uh, the this of course has a fantastic ensemble cast that was very a, a large ensemble cast featuring almost too many act, actors to name, but we'll just very briefly go through it. There's there's a lot. There's so many. Uh, Edward James Olmos from Miami Vice uh, as Commander William Adama, who was fantastic. Edward James Olmos, in his meeting with uh, Ronald D. Moore, uh, you know, they, they're looking for names, especially for the main uh-huh. actors, the heavies. They wanted named... Uh, they want, uh, Edward James Olmos was on the shortlist, and Mary McDonnell was basically picked by hand by Ronald D. Moore because she played the mom in Donnie Darko. Mm, oh, interesting. She was also in Dances with Wolves as well. She got an Oscar nomination for that, but when he sat down with Almost, Edward James Almost told a story about how, you know, it was my idea to have, like, the Japanese shit in Blade Runner. I just walked up and I told uh, <laughs> I told Ridley Scott, like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if there was, like, a bunch of Asian stuff? And Ronald D. Moore rolled his eyes and was like, okay, he's going to be <laughs> that guy. He's going to take credit for a bunch of stuff. In this show, he's a great actor. Well, okay, but good to know. He then later found the DVD extras of Blade Runner and was watching it. And Ridley Scott on camera is like, you know, funny enough, Edward James almost was the guy who thought of all the Asian (laughs) shit. (laughs) That's so funny. And when talking about uh, how how he approached Battlestar Galactica... Edward James almost says, like, I want this gritty. I want this as grounded as possible. I want that kind of Blade Runner, like, almost, like, too real feeling. If I had, if he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, if I see a green-eyed, googly alien, I will just faint on screen and you'll have to tell people my character died. I refuse to work with googly aliens. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, Yeah, you also have James Callis, who was in Bridget Jones' Diary as Dr. Gaius Baltar. Katie Sackoff as Kara Thrace, a.k.a. Starbuck, is amazing, is an incredible actress, and got to showcase some fantastic talents in some of the episodes of the show. The writers claim that, like, writing for Katie as Starbuck is almost too easy. She has that kind of mischievous, like, pushing-the-edge personality. She tells this story a lot in uh, at con panels, but apparently uh, she never knew the show, and she was up for this role, um... And uh, when she when it looked like she was going to get it, she told her dad, like, hey, I'm going to because her dad wasn't a sci fi fan. Hey, I'm going to go. Um, I, I'm, I'm up for this role and in Battlestar Galactica. And her dad was like, oh, hey, wh- which one? And she said, Starbuck. And her dad kind of paused for a second and he said, I think you need to watch the show. <laughs> and so she went to Blockbuster, got a bottle of wine, sat and watched it with her friend. And within the first five minutes, she said, oh, <laughs> She called her dad back and said, I understand. Again, accounting for the era, she then left her house, walked to the internet cafe, and um, looked up chat rooms to figure out what people were thinking about the role of Starbuck being a woman. And she immediately realized that, 
okay, fuck these people. (laughs) (laughs) She kills it, man. Absolutely kills it. You also have Trisha Helfer as Agent Six. uh, And she, of course, fantastic. The sexy, sultry Cylon that really is so synonymous. Like, you, you see an image of her... That image of her surrounded by the bureaucrats, the the table of soldier officer people is so iconic and really just sums up the show. I mean, she's literally the only spot of color in the entire initial run of the show. Yes, totally. And for someone that worked as an actor in New York, um, you know, she was just this six foot tall bombshell woman and with barely any acting experience. And by the end of that show... So many of the people on the show... Barely, barely any acting experience. Uh, by the end of the by the end of the series, she's playing like four different actors. You know, four. I mean, t- literally millions of individual six models, each with their own backstories, right. each with their own motivations. It's kind of in, uh, Grace Park as well. Uh, she was initially up for Starbuck, and she got the role of Boomer. Mm. You know, these are these are very green actors who are kind of were thrown in head first and kind of Kill rose it. to the occasion in a way that is almost a miracle. Yeah, for sure. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The miniseries airs in 2003 and becomes the highest rated miniseries on cable that year and the best ratings for any show on the Sci-Fi Channel. So, of course, this leads to a 13-episode order from the Sci-Fi Channel. So, um, there, here's a thing that I want to talk about because it kind of happens before, right before the, seri- the miniseries starts. Ronald D. Moore is invited to the 25th anniversary Battlestar Galactica convention called Galacticon, and it's being held... By Richard Hatch, the original actor who played uh, Apollo. And within Battlestar Galactica fandom, they hate this reboot. They hate that they're switching over Starbuck. They hate that in interviews, Ronald D. Moore kind of says, yeah, this show's really hokey. And the original show's kind of like silly and wastes all these opportunities. And we're not going to do a bunch of stuff. But like having faith, Ronald D. Moore appears and does his panel anyway. And he has the perfect plan. He has seven minutes of what he thinks are just killer scenes from the miniseries. And he's going to finally show these fans firsthand. Again, this is before the internet. No one was going to, like, leak the footage. No one was going to hold up their, you know, uh, under a megapixel flip phone camera and, like, get the footage out. But, like, to these diehards, I'm going to show them what's what. And there were huge concerns going on before it. Um, there was like a fan movement where people on message boards said they were going to like throw popcorn at him because he said Battlestar Galactica was like a cheap popcorn adventure. And so he makes his case. He shows the footage and the entire crowd starts booing. Oh, they wow. start yelling at him in the Q&A panel. They just keep like berating him for ruining the show that they love. And again, 
watching the original show now, oh my God, so exciting. If I was 12 years old, this would have been my life. I would have been uh, as obsessed as these people. It was nothing else was like it on TV. And, you know, if you were still a fan 25 years afterwards, chances are you were part of a very elite cadre of people that were keeping this flame alive. And the guy responsible to carry the flame over is talking about how shitty the flame is. (laughs) And in the midst of all this chaos, Richard Hatch himself stands up and shouts the crowd down and says, you know, this isn't how we do things. This isn't right. He's doing what he's doing. It's not what I would have done. But you got to like, you can't just shout at him like this. This is awful. Like everybody be calm, be people about this. And the crowd quiets down. And it's backstage that Ronald D. Moore thanks Richard Hatch. And Richard Hatch again reiterates like, I'm sorry that happened. Obviously, I still have issues with what you're doing with the show. It's something important to me. Uh, That reboot, the the trailer that I worked on was like a huge personal investment. And I really had a lot of hope for it. And it's kind of disappointing. But, you know, I, you know, thank you for coming. I really respect you for coming out. And Ronald D. Moore kind of thinks to himself, why don't we just cast Richard Hatch? Why don't we just put him in the show? They love Richard Hatch. He's like, he just proved that he has like gravity and he's cool. And so that's where the idea of the character of Tom Zarek comes in. Mm. And Richard Hatch kills it as Zarek. Yeah. Zarek is one of the most fascinating characters. He's like the terrorist guy and like represents a whole nother wing of the political intrigue in the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of having that like in a weird way, getting the OG fans on his side, but also kind of having like a fuck you to the fans right. being like, like, oh, well, I'll have Richard Hatch, but he's still going to be the dark, politically driven character of my show. Yeah is like an amazing That's kind awesome. of synergy between the fandom and the reboot. So this is that big quote I had mentioned earlier from Moore about essentially this sums up his approach to the new show based on the old show. The show was about an apocalypse. The show opens with a genocide, an apocalyptic destruction of 12, count them, 12 planets. Billions of human lives are lost. The survivors heroically run away, fleeing an implacable enemy that is determined to destroy them no matter what. And they're looking for a mythical place called Earth. And the first place they go is the casino planet. And therein lies the contradiction and the problem with the show. They were unable to square that circle. There was no way in that era of television that they could really play the premise. It's a dark premise. It's a disturbing premise. It's a frightening premise. There was no way in those days they could play it. I felt my obligation on some level was to do the show they should have made. The show that really honors the idea of what the show was about. This is a truer version of Battlestar Galactica in some ways than the original. Which I think is uh, perfectly sums up what the remake was all about. So, the series picks up where the O3 miniseries left off, uh, with the 12 colonies of COBOL, led by President Laura Roslin and the Commander William Adama, leading the old but strong warship, the Battlestar Galactica, and a ragtag fleet of ships traveling across the galaxy, looking for the fabled, long-lost, quote, 13th colony, Earth. And that's where we get to episode 30, uh, the, the first episode, which is called 33, which we mentioned before. They have to jump every 33 minutes. It is just an, one of the best episodes of television ever made. Period. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's like really, really. And that miniseries, by the way, uh, I don't know. I hope we're doing it enough justice. So good. It is a three hour long watch. It is so heavy, so emotional, so 
so stressful and and just you feel like the shit is really hitting the fan in a way that I have not seen captured on a, a television show very often. My relationship with the miniseries is a little bit fractured because I before this week never actually watched it. I never went back and watched Whoa. it. I just the show was good enough for me. Wow. And um there's a ton of really really great moments and stuff that like sets the tone for the rest of the show in ways that they never even intended it to. Uh, stuff like when Six, uh, when Caprica Six, like, breaks that fucking baby's neck out of nowhere. Uh, when she says the line, God is love, when they, um, this is, this is a weird little anecdote. Uh, at the end, you know, the big triumphant end of the movie, the miniseries, is when Edward James Almost, as Adama, says, like, you know, I know the way to Earth and we're gonna go there. So say we all. And then yeah. everyone just kind of goes like, okay. And then he just really like barks out. So say we all. And everyone gets like hyped up. That was up. an improvised moment, right? Yeah. The, that re- repetition thing wasn't in the script. No, no. It was just supposed to be like a humble, uh, the the preacher, the, the priest uses it as just a generic amen. And then, yeah. And that one second, Edward James almost just goes full, like remember the Titans on it. And it becomes this rallying cry for the rest of the show. Yeah. It's totally. it, like that, that excitement in the crowd, that shock in the crowd is real. Those are those extras are like getting caught up in that moment. Yeah. God, yeah. I, there's so much I want to talk about the the cast and stuff, but that's also because I just read a bunch of stuff about the <laughs> cast. Um, Jamie Bamber, who plays Apollo, uh, initially had no idea who he was being cast for because he kept reading the script being like, okay, I'm reading for Apollo. I don't like, where's Apollo? There's uh. this Leland guy <laughs> who seems to have a real, I wish I was reading for Leland. Who the fuck's Apollo? Yeah, because of course they made, I, I mentioned it briefly, but they they changed, the characters' names were that in the original, but they, they're just like their, it's like their fighter name, their call sign essentially mm-hmm. is is uh, Apollo and Starbuck and everything which i think was smart because those are kind of wacky names a little bit they sound more like code names for sure the uh the guy that plays uh chief terrell was actually um he wasn't even like that you know he wasn't didn't have any acting experience his main job was doing the reads for other actors at casting calls and at the last second oh, wow. they just kind of looked to him and was like Hey, you want to read for this uh, Terrell guy? Oh no! Do you, they made him read for Apollo, and then they decided he was uh, going to be Terrell, and he brought so much to that role. There's like a real mm-hmm. kind of like blue collar earnestness to him, yeah. and alongside that blue collar earnestness is a lot of blue collar rage. Yeah, uh, as a seemingly kind but just uh, brooding angry man. Uh, I, I definitely, my favorite character is Terrell on that show. Mm, mm. Also, he hooks up with a lot of hotties. <laughs> so, of course, and if you listen to our Firefly episode, this will sound like a very, a very similar situation. The network paid for some test screenings of the miniseries, and the results were that it was too dark and that none of the characters were likable. So the network was shocked when the show did as well as it did, and Moore had to put his foot down hard. They did not want 33 to be the first episode. They thought it was too much, and he had to fight super, super hard in order to get that to be the first episode and and to get the show to be in the preferred order. Thank God, because it really ruined Firefly in a lot of ways that... The, the, because the network they messed with the episode order with the yeah. episode order which is insane like why why stop <laughs> I don't understand especially for shows where the previous events affect the, our characters in uh-huh. almost real time 
Also, this show really deals heavily, not just with politics, but also with religion. Moore felt that this, uh, that Star Trek unfairly turned its back on religion in the series and wanted this to be a, a focus in Galactica. Moore was raised Catholic, had a great interest in Eastern religions, and now considers himself to be agnostic. He also refers to himself as a recovering Catholic. Uh, that explains fucking Baltar's entire <laughs> character, this guy who's just horny and guilty all the time. <laughs> yep, and Moore said, and then as the Cylons became human looking, when we decided that they would look like us, it just raised a whole host of issues that went in this direction. How they thought of themselves, why they wanted to kill humanity, that they saw themselves as humanity's children, but felt they could never really come into their own until they had killed their parents. Already you're dealing with these metaphysical and physical arenas. And you mentioned the God is love moment in the miniseries. That is actually the moment that uh, changed the game for more, apparently. And that's when he decided to make the Cylons monotheistic and the colonies polytheistic. Moore is also a history buff and was fascinated by monotheism, driving out paganism in Europe and Western civilization, and wanted to play off of that history here because, of course, the humans are polytheistic, right? Are uh, worship multiple gods. Moore said, in sci-fi, you get a pass. You can play with these things and get into them because everyone agrees it's not truly Christianity and it's not really Islam and it's not really all the things we're all so freaked out about, even though it is. So much of the show, and I think what it kind of ended up, it kind of ended up falling apart in the final season, which mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. is that so many of what we consider these bombshells, these like amazing choices are kind of done almost in an, not a, fully improvised style, but like deliberate direction to pick what is the most cool, what has the most impact, what gives the the writer's room the most like, oh shit, that's interesting kind of vibe. Stuff like, um, you know, they're running into issues with how do we do Cylons because we don't want guys in mm. suits, but the CGI shots are way too difficult, especially if they have to keep appearing over and over again alongside human actors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the answer is they look like humans and now you can have humans, but now, ooh, who's real? What does it mean to be human? Like, all that, you know, they didn't aim for that philosophy thing. It was all born from that practical decision. Uh, you know, oh, so what does it mean to be human? Uh, they're jealous. They want to have babies. They, they secretly want to reproduce. That wasn't a deliberate decision. They, uh, the guy who played Hilo, he has like a crazy name, like Tacoma or something, was really popular in the miniseries. And they wanted him to be, you know, they intended him to be a one-off character. But so they brought him back and they, that's where that whole like arc where he's trying to survive on Caprica with fake Boomer comes in and they're writing like, OK, cool, we have a fake Boomer. But what does she need from him? Like, mm. uh, maybe they want to have babies like, OK, cool. Like, all right. Now, biology and reproduction is a big theme in this show. <laughs> like everything that kind of keeps the ball going, the, the, the greater philosophical mystery box that they're building is being slapped together with just yeah. cool ideas that are coming out of the writer's room. Less so than a coherent, that's, I mean, because I, I, I still get mad when I think about the series finale. Like, I know there's a ton of great character moments. You know, uh, Rosalind gets an amazing send-off. Adama gets a great send-off. But also, like, you end up with, like, just on paper, the idea that, like, oh, turns out the Cylon god was real, uh, was directly affecting things uh, in the same manner that a Christian god would. Mm. And also, everything we went through was technically so that this baby could have sex with cavemen so they could 
uh, repeat this cycle of violence in a million years. Like it's such like because you know it's just it was just the only way out. Right, right. And and even by season three, they were starting to struggle with all of the different story elements. Here, I wanted to talk about writing process, and this is where we dig more into the show bible. Uh, the show bible says, "Call it naturalistic science fiction." This idea, the presentation of a fantastical situation in naturalistic terms, will permeate every aspect of our series. Moore said, What those years at Trek really instilled in me was a great sense of structure and story. The writers would sit in rooms with big white dry erase boards for hours, days on end, and we broke stories down in minute detail. We would break them down scene by scene, almost to dialogue levels. We'd spend hours doing it, rearranging them, reshuffling, writing again. You do that process for years on end, and it builds builds in a sense of story so I have a muscle memory of story that I can kind of stroke through quickly in the room ew but the basics are there so he's stroking through these story elements hard sometimes slowly sometimes more vigorously and fastly as he strokes (laughs) his way through all of these different stories and the show bible even talks about avoiding quote the usual stories about parallel universes time travel mind control evil twins godlike powers and all the other cliches of the genre instead the writing should focus on the drama on real people that the audience can identify with aka quote it is a show about us it is an allegory for our own society our own people and it should be immediately recognizable to any member of the audience in terms of character the drive was to break away again from all the sci-fi cliches like the cocky guy or the wacky alien sidekick They want, quote, living, breathing people, the likes of shows like The West Wing or The Sopranos. They actually specifically reference those shows, which I think makes a lot of sense if you have watched it uh, in terms of their character work. The show Bible also says our characters are not superheroes. They are not elite. They are everyday people caught up in an enormous cataclysm trying to survive the best they can. I love the character of the president for that. and, and, And I think she does such a great job because she, of course... Everybody's wiped out. She's the what? Secretary of Education. She's right. uh, Secretary of Education. She just found out she has cancer. Yeah. And then all of a sudden she's being sworn in as president, something she never thought would happen. And that that the character work is so good there. And you really feel that for her. You really feel like she's in over her head, but she's just doing everything she can to hold it together and lead her people. It's really powerful stuff. And, you know, she's affected, you know, at first she's like the quote unquote voice of reason. She's the conscious trying to push against Adama. And then, you know, their relationship is so good together. Yeah. Um, you know, they feel like soulmates, even when they're not like romantically consummated at, you know, uh, you know it's just there seems to get there's so much like respect and love and the way that they are like philosophical rivals, but like, you know, proud peers together is truly amazing. And, you know, after the events of the series, they kind of end up flipping around a little. And it's up to Adama to kind of keep the libertarian Mm. streak alive. And it's she ends up getting like kind of hardened by the experiences Mm. with the Cylons. It's, uh, you know, real character growth. And they they play off each other so beautifully. And again, these are the most experienced actors in the entire production. And Moore talks about how McDonald was the had the most notes i think you know she wanted to make sure that her character had reasons for saying what she was saying and doing what they were doing and it's you know together they were kind of the mom and dad of the cast uh-huh and and that that definitely fe- it feels that way for sure 
In terms of uh, approach to filming, we talked about how they wanted to give it that cinema verite uh, documentary feel, which was, again, novel for the time. I feel like now we see a ton of that ty- that approach to... Shaky cam for days. Yep. Uh, the show Bible said a casual viewer should, for a moment feel like he or she has accidentally surfed onto a 60 minutes documentary piece about life aboard an aircraft carrier until someone starts talking about Cylons and battle stars. For the visual effects shots, the idea was to treat the ships like real ships that someone had to go out and film with a real camera. We did mention that a little bit before. And therefore, no flashy VFX panning and zooming or anything like that. They wanted to always make sense out of the camera. They wanted to avoid cliched, especially at the time, the fast cutting that was popularized on networks like MTV. They wanted to completely avoid that. But they also wanted to get away from the very predictable shooting style of Star Trek, which is essentially master shot, two shot, close up close-up two-shot back to master shot very predictable the show bible uh, in the show bible it reads if there is a model here it would be vaguely hitchcockian that is a sense of building suspense and dramatic tension through the use of extending takes and long masters which pull the audience into the reality of the action rather than distract through the use of ostentatious i'm sorry ostentatious cutting patterns to create a more naturalistic feel, the spaceships don't make noise because there is no noise in space. And I remember that was always a big trivia piece about Battlestar Galactica that people bring up. Their attention to the science. Uh, FTL is even broken down in the show Bible as well. The faster than light space jumps that they do. They actually don't travel faster than light. Instead, a jump happens when the fabric of space itself is folded and the ship travels from point A to point B directly, which I thought was very fascinating. I mean, the the killer quote, just the thing uh, to to get from the story Bible is the quote. Our goal is nothing less than the reinvention of the science fiction television series. Hell yeah. And that makes me want from now on, if I if I ever write another show Bible in my life, it's going to have the same attitude. It's going to have the same attempt at actually doing something different, special, cha- changing the game. It's such an inspiring show Bible to read. It makes me want to make the show. It's so good. So technically, uh, Ronald claims that that document was made like on the course of a couple of hours after David Icke told him, uh, you know, hey, uh, the studio execs never read the scripts. They never like, you need to just boil this down to something they can just like chow through while they're on the toilet. Hell yeah. And so he didn't think that it would actually make its way out of that. But it turns out the scripts that went out to actors uh, all had that spiel attached to it in the front of it. So everybody... Like, imagine you're an actor and you get that fucking piece of hype material before you start, like, reading the script for the first time. Awesome. So many people wanted a chunk of this. It's awesome. The music in the miniseries was done by Richard Gibbs and assisted by Bear McCreary. Gibbs played keyboard for Oingo Boingo in the early 80s and went on to perform (laughs) on over 150 albums for artists such as Tom Waits, War, Robert Palmer, and Aretha Franklin. Then he moved into film and television scoring for films like Say Anything, which has a pretty iconic soundtrack, and shows like The Simpsons. After the miniseries, however, Gibbs found he couldn't commit to a full-time regular series gig, so he handed the keys to the musical car over to Bear McCreary, and this was his first big gig, and he knocks it out of the park. He scores over 70 episodes and displayed a wide variety of ethnic influences in his work. As, like everything else about the show, that noise, he tried to (laughs) compose things you wouldn't normally hear in a sci-fi series, and now I feel like that score is like every sci-fi series, essentially. It's that same kind of 
thing, but definitely has a weight to it. Very, very strong, I think. Don't forget that uh, killer rendition of All Along the Watchtower from season three. <laughs> oh, do you remember? Did you watch that at the time? Do you remember when that was the big bombshell? Yes. Yeah, for sure. There's just fucking Michael Hogan be like, there's somebody some way out of here. The Joker to the thief. <laughs> <laughs> So nuts. It blew my mind at the time, but it is so eye-rolly now. All I have left are notable episodes, Jake. Do you have any more tidbits about the making of the show before we wrap it up with that? Just everybody, you know, knew what they were doing was, like, different. (laughs) Uh, A million, uh, James Callis as uh, Baltar uh, was incredibly nervous. You know, he he was the one who made Baltar's character kind of funny, kind of witty, kind mm. of this weird, fearful narcissist that uh-huh. made him, like, way more relatable uh-huh. than, again, the very on-the-nose, soup, like, evil villain that right. uh, the original series made him. And supposedly, um, they were testing for a lot of uh, Baltars and a lot of Sixes, and James Callis claims that the only reason he got it is because he was testing alongside Trisha, and Trisha was unstoppable Mm. uh right before their first scene together that they filmed for the miniseries was them like making out (laughs) on the bed together at his very swanky house yeah and they were a little bit nervous that scene is hot and so uh also trisha keeps talking about how she was wearing like pleather underwear and how it was like incredibly awkward to actually like strip seductively in it and she suggested that they go into a utility room and make out for a little bit just so they know to trust each other. Oh, wow. Man, that must have been difficult for him <laughs> to do that. Uh, she is very attractive. Um, yeah, so definitely, 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 I would say start, if you're curious about the show, start where it starts. Start with the miniseries, which you can, I rented it on Amazon Prime. And then 33 is just incredible. I know we keep... We brought that up already a couple times, but it's, just it's, it's almost so like good. if you if you're not down with the show after watching that for the first time, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, uh, another one I have uh, Pegasus in season two, episode ten, in which the Galactica encounters a second surviving battle star. But of course, it's not easy as nothing is in the in the world of Battlestar Galactica. This leads to a standup between two admirals over who is in charge. Fantastic premise for an episode. The Pegasus consisting of a hundred percent military crew which in and of itself leads to a moral decline. Very fascinating concept for an episode. Maelstrom, we talked about Katie Sackhoff's acting as Starbuck. Uh, This episode is all about just her as an incredible actor confronting her abusive past at the hands of her mother. Um, Very, very strong episode. No, if you want to like just fall head over heels with the almost intimidating power of Katie Sackhoff, you have to watch Unfinished Business, okay. which is the uh, episode where all the characters are in a underground boxing tournament against each other. And it takes place directly after the new Caprica arc. And it is such wonderful character work. It gives almost everybody a great moment. And, you know, for a show that is ostensibly without any space fights, without any Cylons, without any weird religious mookity mook, it is just the crew of the Battlestar Galactica dealing with some shit. Yeah. It is incredibly well done. Hell yeah. uh, the fights kind of oscillate between the boxing ring and flashbacks to their lives on New Caprica. New Caprica, that entire arc mm. is, especially at the time when we were deep in the Iraq invasion, uh-huh. uh, incredible. Basically, there's a political rift within the Galactic, within the fleet, and the uh, the fleeing colonials. Uh, decide to start a new planet, a new colony that 
then is occupied by the Cylons and the level of brutality and subterfuge and intrigue and questions that it raised is so, it was so timely and so important that it's, it honestly, it felt like almost creepy at the time. Like I was, you know, the kind of shit that you're like, are you, are you allowed to talk about this on a TV show while this is still happening? Right. It was kind of incredible. Another episode is, uh, Exodus. Mm, mm-hmm. Exodus, yeah, that's a big one. The new Caprica episodes kind of blur together, but is that the one where the Battlestar Galactica does the fucking crazy FTL jump within atmosphere and all the Vipers go? Because that was fucking, that was like one of the biggest fuck yeah moments in sci-fi history. Hell yeah. I think so, yeah. I think so. I, I know for a fact, uh, this was during the height of like, Kazaa, like BitTorrent, <laughs> like piracy. This show got pirated to shit and back because it aired in uh, half of the funding for each episode was uh, through the UK. And so it would air in the UK before America. So if you really wanted to see what happens, you would like pirate it quickly. And I was watching it in a little VLC window at my job at the time. And when that fucking ship burst through the atmosphere, I like almost stood up from my chair and like, got myself noticed it was that high that's awesome also of course the controversial three-part finale daybreak with the final assault on the cylons and all that stuff that's another of course notable episode then there are also two films razor which is about the pegasus's past that i mentioned i hear that's amazing i couldn't watch it in time and the plan which gives perspective from the cylons point of view i hear that is liquid dog shit served (laughs) on a turd plate Well, there you go. So don't eat that turd plate, ladies and gentlemen. All right. I think that's it. I think that that is our episode on Battlestar Galactica. This was a fun one, Jake. This was genuine. It's good. You know, it's really nice when you can talk about something that's good. Yes. Until the last season when the writer's strike came in and then (laughs) they're just trying to tie up a lot of things all at once. And it's kind of frustrating, but also fascinating at the same time. It's this was uh, something I knew very little about. And I had a blast combing through it and learning about it and and learning about it from a show show creation standpoint about just just Roger right Roger Moore right or Robert Moore Ronald D Moore. Ronald geez not terrible with names Roger Moore's uh as uh, James Bond oh right Ronald Moore is a fascinating figure and I loved learning about his whole mentality, his whole approach to television making. Um, okay, well, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Wait, are you saying they should, if they want to hear bonus episodes every week and help support the show, they should go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew? That's right, Jake. You can go there for $5 a month. We have weekly bonus episodes. And it's, uh, I think, a really good time. So check it out. Also, you can find me on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I always love having Whizbrew fans pop in. I do streams Monday, Tuesday, and Friday night. Check me out on that. And uh, Jake? Follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung for my jorps and japes and jokes and chuckles. And always remember, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising. So say we all. So say we all. R.I.P. Evie the Chimp in a Dog Costume. (laughs) this show is made possible by listeners like you thanks to our ad sponsors you can support our shows by supporting them for more shows like the one you just listened to go to lastpodcastnetwork.com price drop time to shop get to a nordstrom rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns 
Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.